Uh, if uh, you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open up with me? Um, first of all, I want you to go to the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel, uh, the 26th chapter. And we're going to be reading uh, 8 through 12. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, uh, we will pass one to you. Uh, so, so 1 Samuel 26. All right. So we're going we're gonna to start with the 8th verse and uh, read through the 12th of 1 Samuel 26. And it connects with our passage today because uh, if you know anything of uh, David's history, <clears throat> you realize that uh, as a young boy, he was a shepherd. And he was uh, very much disregarded even by his own family. Um, the shepherd's position is very low on the totem pole, uh, probably near uh, somebody who does trash um, in our world today, sometimes looked down on. Unfortunately, I did trash myself, so I don't say that with any disrespect, uh, but that is true. And so uh, Samuel came out and anointed uh, David to be king over Israel, and um, and then God opened up an opportunity where there was a giant of a man that came against uh, Israel and challenged them, challenged their God and uh, by the name of Goliath, and David defeated that man and rose up in the ranks of what was respected within Israel. Uh, and then uh, a, a king, King Saul, who the Spirit of God left, and an evil spirit came and dwelled in him, and uh, David himself actually played music for King Saul and was loving and ministering to him. And yet King Saul's jealousy grew uh, to the point that twice he threw a spear at David and tried to kill him. Uh, but each time David eluded it. And then David went on a journey of running from King Saul for eight years. And um, the account that we're reading is one of those accounts in which, the second time, in which David was given the opportunity um, uh, to take King Saul's life. And, uh, and he, we'll see how he, how he did that. And so this is, is a second time uh, out in the wilderness uh, King Saul is sleeping with his men, and David and his men uh, see it. They come upon this, their camp, and, uh, and in verse 8, then um, Abishai said to David, Today, as uh, David and Abishai um, uh, sneak into the camp and are standing uh, above Saul, sleeping, he says, Today the Lord God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Or his time will come and he will die. Or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. 
So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Isn't this so against kind of our DNA? Don't we so want to revenge our enemies? Or when we see someone that, that is not living correctly, we immediately want to take charge and, and take their life in some way, shape, or form, whether by belittling them, by dishonoring them, or any of the above. And it is so our nature. It is so our nature. How, you know, Jesus taught us this. He said, um, he said love your enemies and do good unto those who persecute you. How do you do that? I mean, if there's any teaching in Scripture that is anti our nature. It's that one. It's that one. And yet, and yet God calls us to do this. How in the world can we come to this? How can we come to this place? How do we let the Spirit... Because, you know, a few couple of weeks ago, we taught about um, uh, the, the spirit of prayer from Romans 8, 26 and 27. In that he groans with us, right? So, so it's not that God does not see the injustice. It's, it's not that he disregards the injustice or the wrong. Literally, the Spirit of God. When, you know, when, when I talk about injustice, has anyone in this room experienced any injustice? Has anyone in this room experienced things that you just... You know, this isn't fair, God. This is, not, this is not the way life was supposed to be. Right? It's not that we, we, we serve a God that is both loving and just. Both sides of the coin. Don't get caught up on one side. You've got to keep that balance. But, and in, in, in when injustice happens, when it happens to you, his spirit groans over that. And he could... Snap a finger, and it could be all gone. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? Why does he let, I mean, so many people recently been asking the question, why does God let evil in this world? And some have equated the fact that since God allows evil in this world, that must mean that God is evil or has evil in him, and that's not true. But I think that, if you will move forward with me, if I think that Romans 8, 28 has some answers for us. If we truly receive uh, this word in the fullness of what he wants to share with us. I, just impressed on my heart. I, I know... Some of you are going through some very unjust things right now. Conversation with a brother of, of mine whose who's, um, ex-wife keeps coming back and abusing him and trying to get money out of him. And try, right? um, 
uh, you know, past uh, experiences in your life, past relationships, past bosses. I mean, just, right? There's, there's injustice in this room. There's things that are going on inside right now. What can we learn? Well, I really believe that it's in the ultimate security of the all things. The all things. And the passage, of course, is Romans 8, 28. That, and we know... And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. All things. Now that's easy passage to understand when life is going smooth. But man, is that a tough passage to accept when I feel like it's all falling to pieces. I feel like Everything around me is falling to pieces. Isn't that exactly how David felt? He's anointed to be king. Anointed to be king. And yet, for eight years, he's chased by King Saul. He has tried time and time again to murder him. Hates him. I think we have to come to the place of understanding that one of our greatest struggles in life is going to be dealing with the thought, what is happening right now is not for my good, but for my destruction. If you're honest with yourself, you've had that thought. I've had that thought. I can't see any good in this. I can't see... Anybody with me? I, I just, you know, we have to understand something that the enemy's main purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he is constantly trying to convince you that the circumstances of your life are absolutely out of God's control, that you are headed for disaster. This is not going to end well. All the things I said about David, how many times must he not have thought? I thought you anointed me. I, you know, I mean, him and Jonathan had an amazing relationship. But even King Saul asked Jonathan to kill David. And when Jonathan refused to, he threw a spear at his own son. That's not right. That's not right. It really brings forward the verse that says that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. But in the midst of this, we have to deal in faith with it. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about the Holy Spirit of prayer, right? And so, and so in David's life, David was a man that it said often about him that David inquired of the Lord. I think that was the, the, the difference maker in David's life. It says that when King David was anointed king, or when, da- yeah, that the scriptures recorded that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The working of the Holy Spirit of God draws mankind, um, our hearts, to cry out to God in prayer. During the eight years of David's uh, life of being pursued in the, uh, uh, in the wilderness, he wrote many prayers. 
many prayers crying out to God. One of them is uh, Psalm 57. And just, I'll read it to you, but just write it down. It's, it's worthy of it. He's in, he's in the back of a cave with his men. And Dave, or King Saul goes in to relieve himself in the front of the cave and then to take a nap in the cave. And this is what David writes in Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for, I, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. What an amazing prayer in the midst of being in the back of a cave with the man who's pursuing you. I think we need to understand an important truth. If we let the Holy Spirit have his way with us, we'll find ourselves many times on our knees before God crying out to him. We can be assured that the Holy Spirit cries with us and intercedes on our behalf, bringing about the security of the working out for our lives. But listen to me. If we refuse to pray or we neglect our time with God on our knees, we can have no confidence in that security of working out. Mary and Mark, you stole the thunder of my verse. If my people who are called by my name. If my people. Oswald Chambers says this. God saves a person, fills them with the Holy Spirit, and then says in effect, now you work it out in your life and be faithful to me, even though the nature of everything around you is causing you to be unfaithful. And it is true. One of the biggest acts of faithfulness in our lives is our time in prayer with our God. And that's why the Holy Spirit is the spirit of prayer. And as we pray, he draws us to the truths of what this verse teaches us. He draws us to, to receive just as David did in the midst of him being pursued. Did you hear his prayer that you are the overcomer of the one that I'm being pursued by? These are lions coming against me, but you are my God. I will rest in the shadow of your wings. That is faith. It's not, it's not in, in the past of the event. That causes us to be of faith. But it's in the midst of the event that causes us to live in faith. What do you know in the midst of the event of your life? Some of you are in dark events right now. Some of them might be psychological. Some of them might be physical. Some of them might be relational. I don't know what events that you are in right now. But you're in events. In the midst of it. What do you know? Because that's exactly how the, this we know. What is it that you know? The, somebody once wrote these words. The greatest thing that, that you know in your heart is what you know about God. That is what determines who you are. It is, see, 
It's not just that we know things about God, but that we know him. Because, see, that's, when our, that's our identity. That's what develops our identity. What I know about God moves my feet forward. My identity moves our feet forward. We, we have heard of people who have, have claimed identities in this world, and it's moved their lives in a direction. Some into lives of, of accepting lies and falsities in their life. But I'm telling you, what you got, and I, you know, <laughs> a pastor always has to decide what he's going to focus on because we could be here for hours. Right? I mean, just the whole, I mean, just the whole topic about who God is. We could be here for hours. So just a couple things for you to reflect on this morning. One is the character of God. The character of God that Exodus 34 brings out to us is this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's the God that you serve? The one who is, who is compassionate means that he walks in your footprints. He walks in your feet, in your shoes. He walks with you every day. He knows exactly what you're going through. That he's gracious God. His grace is around us. He's slow to anger. How many are thankful about that this morning? He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He has not left us. He is loving and just. And listen, he always does everything right for the right reason. He always does everything right for the right reason. Never compare God to man. Because that's when you fail. But he's amazing. The second thing of God that we know is that God's will is working out in this world. I don't know if you've thought about this soon, but there's a triad of wills that is under God's will. First of all, he is sovereign God. He, his will is sovereign. He is ruling, as Isaiah said, over the sphere of this earth. Uh, there is nothing that goes unnoticed. There is nothing that goes outside of him writing the story of this will. But he also has a permissive will. He allowed Satan to zip that snake suit on and to deceive Eve. He has allowed evil in this world. He did not cause it. There is no evil in God, but he has allowed it. He has permitted it. And for a short period of time, it is loose on this earth, and every single one of us have felt its effect. But under his sovereign and permissive will is the free will of man. You have a free will. You have a free will to obey him or to disobey him. You have a free will to love him or to hate him. You have a free will to sin or a free will to repent of that sin in him. God will not overstep his free will, our free will. But he ultimately knows where each of it will lead us and every one of us. Now, the understanding of the triad of wills is, helps us overcome the empty view of the disguise of unbelief that simply states, God is in control, everything will work out. We have heard that time and time again. And it's, it's sometimes just a way to, to get out of what God is calling us to do in the midst of the darkness. Yes, God is in control. And yes, he allows 
this trial in my life to cause me to bow to him. Now I have an opportunity to respond by submitting to his will and to trust him. And so, yes, he's in control, but there's something on my part that I need to do in response to that faith. I need to move through it and trust that in the midst of his will, in the midst of his control, that I follow him. So, so what do we know about God? We know his character it's throughout Scripture. We know that his will, that he's sovereign, but he's also, he is permitted. It's always interesting to me. I think that... Um, um, that in this era, so many people have asked the question, um, why is there evil in the world? And they have equated that to God must be evil because there's evil in the world and it has caused them to turn away. But if you understand his will and the way that he works in the triad of wills, you understand why evil is here, why he's permitted it, because it's always to draw us closer to him but also for the purpose of God. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me. It is knowing that this God has a purpose and a purpose that cannot be thwarted and a purpose that is working out. These are three things that we know of God. And these three things can help us to move forward. So, so, and we know. What do you know? And we know that in all things, God. Now this phrase talks about the fact that um, it's utterly comprehensive. No qualifications, no limits, no restrictions, no conditions. One of the most difficult areas that I want to walk into with this idea of no restrictions and no limits is the area of temptation. I think that somehow there has been a false teaching that has come forward that as you become a Christian, that somehow you become perfect. And that you no longer are tempted or you no longer sin. And I think these are areas that have caused, listen to me, have caused people to not even consider Christianity because they'll say, I could never be like those people. They've got it all together. They're perfect. And I think it has been destructive to the church. And so as we think about all things in the area of temptation, I want, I want to challenge you with something. Why did Jesus teach us to pray this prayer in Matthew 6.13? And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Does God ever lead his people into areas of temptation? Why would Jesus have us pray that prayer? Now, James 1.13 tells us that when we're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. I believe that with all my heart. But this does not mean that the path that he has you on, won't lead you into place where the tempter can tempt. It's very important to, to think about this. Why do I say that? Because in Luke 4, Jesus, it says, the first verse, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. 
why did God lead the Israelites through the desert that gave them many opportunities to be tempted? He could have, could have led them across the, the northern part, only 11 days, and they would have been in Kadesh Barnea. But instead, he decided to take them the long way because, listen to me, he was testing their hearts to see if they would truly follow God. Yes. So it was in the midst of the temptation. Do you, what were some of the things they were tempted about in the, in the desert? Yeah, food. Water. How about the golden calf? Moses delayed. We need God right now. Let's make us a calf. Why? Why? Because he was testing their hearts to see if they would be faithful. Evil exists because God in his permissive will allows it to exist even though there's no shadow of evil in God. He does uh, this to lead his followers down a path that they can not only encounter temptation but realize their great need for him. See, I have, over the years that I have experienced, and even in my own life, and maybe you agree with this, but there are times where I go through temptation, and sometimes I fall to it, that I come to the belief that, you know what, I've, it's all over with. I'm done with. How could God forgive me past this? I say that I'm a follower of God, but I keep being tempted, and I keep, and there's times that I fall to it. Anybody with me? So many people allow that to become a failure in their life where they literally just fall down and become impotent in serving the Lord. But if we understand all things, all things, then we can be encouraged. Listen to me. If he led his own son into the wilderness, what makes you any different than Jesus? All things, even in the face of evil, all things are moving you in the direction of being dependent on God. All things. We could spend a whole lot of time on difficult circumstances that have led people to their very purpose of life. But as I focused on temptation, I just want to give you just a few, I pray, encouraging things. First, temptations should lead us to our knees. One of the most difficult things that God even had me do this week is that, for me, temptation comes in the middle of the night. And I'll wake up in the middle of the night. It's just like crazy. I'm sleeping. And that's where the biggest attack seems to be in my life. One of the most difficult things is to just swing my legs over, drop them down on the floor, and begin to cry out to God. But when I do, it's done. It's done. That's been a tough one for me. Anybody with me? When you're tempted, do you immediately fall on your knees? 
No, you just keep walking. Stop it. It's not going to get you anywhere. Fall on your knees. I need you. That's what temptations, that is God's purpose. Satan's purpose is to tempt you, to destroy you. God's purpose is to bring you into dependence on him and to cry out to him and bring you closer. The other thing that temptation does is it breaks religious pride. Religious pride is so huge and it is so abusive to the church and it is not at all helpful to bringing the gospel to anybody. And so when we realize that, that I feel like I'm such a strong Christian and yet at the next moment it's like, oh, what am I just like going through right now? That we need him. We need him to reign over our minds. We need him to reign over our bodies. And third, temptation reveals, as I said, the weakness of our flesh. And our, in, and our increases our desire for Jesus to come back. You know, when Jesus comes back, there'll be no more temptation. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more cancer scare. No more. I mean, who longs for that? Ew. Absolutely, I do. Sometimes, sometimes, don't you just get tired? Don't you just feel beat up sometimes, some weeks? Don't you just feel like, I don't know if I can get off this floor? I am so tired. Maybe it's just my age. It's not just that. For this I know. For this I know. That in all things, God, what does he do? He works for the good. He works for the good. Third, this doesn't mean that everything is good of itself. But the working together of various elements of life produce a greater effect and often completely different from the sum of each element acting separately. Let me say that again. This doesn't mean that everything is good in of itself but that the working together of various elements of life produce a greater effect than and often completely different from the sum of each element acting separately. Take, for example, salt. Who here likes salt? <laughs> right. Uh, it is the combination of two poisons, sodium and chlorine. But together, but together, they become a preservative and a flavor enhancing of food. So, the, so what they do individually is not as great as what they do together. So what are the two poisons? Jesus said himself, didn't he say this? Chuck, am I right? You just check this. You are the salt of the world? Yeah. Combination of two poisons. What? What are the two poisons of grace? The injustice of the cross, crucifying a righteous man, God-man, and the nature, your sinful nature. 
in of themselves, destructive. Together, powerful. Because Jesus rose from the dead, overcame the cross. And we can, listen, we can live a new life in him. A new creation. And the sum of the two become powerful in this world. And it's about time that happens in our world. A life that is transformed and changed for Jesus Christ. I think the greatest challenge for us in regards to God working everything for good is in regards to our personal dealing with sin. More Christians are defeated by the fact that after conversion, not only is this temptation continuing, but falling to sin. At a lesser rate, it should be. Sanctification always works on us to continue to continue, but still the truth is there. So how can God work for the good in the midst of our struggle with sin? Now, it's important to note this. God does not use sin as an instrument of his own righteousness, but only in the context of overruling it or canceling its natural effect. We say this, and I believe this with all my heart, what Satan meant for evil, God means for good. So how does he do this? Listen to me. This is so important because some of us, even coming in today, are so overcome by their sin. Even though they proclaim to be believers, they're so overcome by the fact that, that you think it and that there are times that you act out. And it's so defeating to us. Can we believe this? Can we trust this? First thing that he does in the, in the light of sin is that he turns natural judgment into compassion. We see sin or weakness in others, our natural response is judgmentalism and separation. But God taught us in his word that we are to remove the plank before we remove the speck. That, we're be, that as we look at as we see sin in other people, we first look at ourselves and we see what's going on in us because, listen to me, you won't all believe this, but a lot of times the reason you see sin in others is because you see it because God is reflecting it back into your own heart and you have the same thing. Not always, but when judgmentalism comes in, when separation comes in, that's what's going on. Because God never means us to be separate. And so, by seeing that, this produces a humility, not only to confess our own prideful sin, but then, listen to me, to become a help to others. To become a help to others. People of God, this is where ministries are born. Someday I'm going to preach on the ministry of anguish. What breaks your heart? What absolutely messes up you in respect to what's going on in this world? 
that's probably where God's calling you to be a minister, to come into that place and to create a grace space within that destructive thing so that people can be saved. Grace. Grace space. Grace. Bringing grace into that space. <laughs> yes. And so it turns natural judgment into compassion when we begin to realize the effect that God has in mind for sin in our life. And yes, I'm, I'm, I went ahead of myself, but it also, he turns hatred into anguish. Sinful people learn to hate, but people who are moved by the Spirit of God moves to be honest with their own sin and see the hurt and pain of sin in other people's lives. Anguish comes when you can feel the effect of sin by looking past the offense of sin. Elizabeth Elliot got this. Her husband was murdered by a tribe. She stayed in the area, and a young woman stumbled out of the woods and told her that, that God needed to minister through her to her tribe. Now, just think about that. When she had overcome the offense of the murder of her husband to go back to this tribe. But guess what? When she did, the whole tribe was changed for Christ. I got a chance to, to not personally meet, but um, to meet in a uh, conference the son of the chief who was part of killing uh, Jim Elliott. And his son was up there proclaiming Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He turns hatred into anguish. And third, he leads us to despise sin and desire holiness. It's God's desire for us to be holy. Be holy as I am holy, right? He says this. He is the source of that holiness. But holiness is only forged in the battle of choosing to love God more than you love the world. When God becomes the overcomer, because his love is the greatest thing in your heart, then you begin to walk in his holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, It's God's will that you should be sanctified or made holy, that you should avoid sexual morality, control your body, and, and that it become holy and honorable. Without the hatred of one's sin, the desire for other holiness would not happen. So go back to David and think about the fact that David was sitting there saying that he would not lay a hand on the anointed one because he believed, he knew who God was. He knew that, that God works out all things for his good and it moved his life. There's someone here today that needs to hear that because they're so overcome by evil. They just have become almost the identity of that evil. But the Lord says in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We do this by trusting and resting in the goodness of God in the midst of the badness of this world. 
our worship leader challenged us today, is God good? All the time. All the time. And there is no greater time where the goodness of God shines through when you're, un, when you're in the darkness of the badness of this world. And so where are we? We know something about God. We know that all things God works for good. Fourthly, of those who love him. Of those who love him. Love is the entrance to Christianity. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. For a long time, there was a song in the radio that absolutely bothered me. Absolutely bothered me. It's called uh, More Like Falling in Love by Jason Gray. It seemed like emotionalism to me. Uh, And even though I'm an emotional guy, I do, I pray you know, that I do stand on the truth and desire to stand on the truth. Listen to the words. Give me rules, I'll break them. Show me lines, I'll cross them. I need more, more than a truth to believe. I need a truth that lives, moves, and breathes. So sweep me off my feet, it's got to be. More like falling in love than something to believe in. More like losing my heart than giving my allegiance. Caught up, called out, come, take a look at me now. It's like I'm fallen. oh, it's like I'm fallen in love. He wrote that in light of G.K. Chesterton, who is a scholar, who wrote these words. Religion looks less of a theory and more like a love affair. Chesterton was a theologian, but he understood the importance of theological theory and love. Theory can keep religion in my head so I can control it. Love is messy and involves both the heart and the head, developed through relationship that leads to a life of absolute devotion. So true love lives into the truth. It lives in the truth that it trusts God, that it has, he has the power to protect, that love desires to live into God's will. Love learns to love God's people. Love hates what God hates, longs for Christ, and grows into obedience as it grows into the need of being close to God. Love, both love and truth, become a power that moves a life. The church has been too long under a very good theological control. But it hasn't been explosive in love. And that's what needs to happen. Are you in love with him? Is his love so powerful that it literally just wakes you up in the middle of the night? Has his love overcome your love of sin, love of the world, love of things around you? Are you absolutely on fire for Jesus Christ? That people in the stores, people in your life, people all around, see it and they can't deny it because you're absolutely sold out for him. I don't think it needs to be seen in fanaticism. I think people wildly dancing and stuff doesn't necessarily show the love of God. 
I think it's a life that is moved in absolute obedience to do something you'd never do unless his love led you into it. And to do a little dance is okay. It's okay. We can't control this thing. We've got to stop trying to control this thing. He wants us to be lit on fire. He wants us to be so caught up in his love that we're unstoppable. That's what his son did. His son obeyed him. Why? Because he loved his father. He was sold out to his father. And his love caused him to walk to that cross. You will go nowhere where the love of God doesn't lead you. So love moves you to hear something and to live something. Fifth, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called. This call is not a general call. It's not the general call of the gospel. It's the effectual call of God in every believer's life. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, For God's gifts and his calls are irrevocable. No one can thwart God's process or his purposes. Our freedom to live into God's call is because he foreloved us before we were created. Not because of what we would do, but because absolutely of him and him alone. Are you called? Are you living into his call? And finally, according to his purposes. John 1, 12 to 13 says we are, that he gives us the right to be called children of God. Not by natural descent, I was born a Christian. Nor of human decision, I have accepted Jesus. Or of husband's will, flesh does not and never will give birth to the Spirit. But born of God. Born of God. By the will of God, are you only a believer? Listen to God's heart for you. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the ends of the beginning from ancient times. What is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Is that the life you live in the purpose of God? For your life? Deuteronomy 7 says that God did not call the Israelites because they were a great nation or a large nation. He called them because he loved them. He called them because he's a covenant-keeping God. And he called them to redeem them from slavery. And he called them because he's more powerful than any force on this earth, and he can do it. So since you had no say over your salvation, does God have every say in the purpose of your existence? 
I think it's a good question in a materialistic world where we make a lot of our own decisions. Remember, David acquired of the Lord. He acquired of the Lord. Are you acquiring of the Lord in all things? Are you seeking him on all things in your life? Because you remember David, the moment he didn't, he got in trouble. The moment he decided not to go out to war in the spring, he saw Bathsheba. As I draw this to a conclusion, why is it important to live into the ultimate security of all things? Because when we don't believe this, it sets us on a course off from the movement of the Spirit and being driven by the identity of Christ and we're moved into circumstances into the physical world. This week I got two phone calls from members of a church. Their pastor made a stand. Not a stand for Christ. He made a stand on evil ideology. And he literally stood up in the front of the whole world and said it out loud. After 30 years of being in ministry, there's a good chance he'll either be taking his church out of the ministry God called him to or he himself will be removed. We have seen this over and over and over again. And it has just driven me to my knees saying, Lord, it is so easy to be driven off of the truth because of the circumstances of this world. Off from the truth because we want to hold on to something that is not true. And we want to make that our life. But the eternal security, the ultimate security is knowing that, is knowing God, knowing who He is. It is the fact that that by knowing God, that all things, all things work for good unto those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Listen to me. It is so important because if you don't believe it, your identity changes into the identity of this world. You have to have things of this world, and it drives your life in a direction that is away from God. And I've seen it time and time again, even amongst pastors. People in ministry, we've seen them fall by... But if you will trust... If you will not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, overcome evil with the goodness of God, overcome all this. I, I, I don't know all your circumstances. I don't know what you're facing. But if you can believe this verse and you can trust him, you will stand strong in the day of battle and you will not give in. And that's my prayer for you and for myself. And in all things, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I don't think it's uh, small significance that Mary and Mark uh, told us today about this prayer ministry. I think the Spirit of God is calling this church to prayer because he knows 
that it's in the midst of that that the victory is won. So they're going to be over in the corner over here afterwards, and they're going to be looking for people to sign up. Sign up to pray after services. Sign up to pray before services at 9 o'clock. Sign up to get involved. There are things that they don't even know yet of what God is going to do if a faithful people will stand up in the spirit of prayer, believing they're not overcome by the circumstances, but in Christ they are overcomers. Even in the midst of the struggle, even in the midst of being tempted, even in the midst of the fact that, that this past week you've fallen and you've had to repent of your sin, even in the midst of all that, God is calling you. Calling you to be a mighty army and to rise up and to be an effect in this neighborhood. Because you believe this passage. You believe this. Let me just ask a question. This is just something that came to my mind. How many of you have lived a portion of your life overcome by darkness? Long periods of time? Short, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you believe and do you know all things? God is working for good unto those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Can you believe that? Stand with me as we pray. Call the team forward. Father in heaven, I, I just thank you for uh, this time. I thank you, Lord, for your amazing mercy and love. I thank you that you're here this morning as you have set hearts of people uh, in unity together under the word of God. Lord, the greatest compliment to a pastor is the fact that the spirit of God speaks even other words to a heart as the word is being spoken. That your spirit has the freedom to move in and around this place and speak to hearts and to encourage us in the midst of, um, Lord, my heart is broken. A brother who, that I've stood with, has turned his back on your truth because he's overcome but the fact that he doesn't believe that all things work for good. That he believes that somehow we have to, um, in our own logical ideology, make a way when sin has not made a way. And so, Father, I just pray for him. And I pray for others. And I pray that, Father, that we will stand because many fall because they've been overcome by evil, by darkness. And I pray that, Lord, in this moment we realize and that we can even say as we repent of sin, as we repel temptation, as we live this life, that we can say what Satan has meant for evil, God means for good. And my life will follow Jesus Christ with all I am. And he is my victory. So, Father, just pray this over everyone in this room. And, Lord, if there are those in this room that are right now suffering, uh, Lord, let them know that uh, they can at this moment um, seek you in prayer 
and cry out to you and let you know what's happening and be confident that you're a God that is the overcomer of all things. We love you and we trust you and we believe you for the good that you are doing. In the name of Jesus, amen.